In this passage, Peter quotes Isaiah 40, which I often say after I read the the scripture passage for the sermon in the morning. I'll follow up by saying the grass withers, flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. Since that is in this passage, why don't I end after I read, I will say this is the word of the Lord. And you can respond by saying, thanks be to God. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As I mentioned, we're going to take one of our services in the next five weeks to be thinking about these Reformation pillars, uh, the, the Beliefs that summarize what happened 500 years ago. Many ways to think about that, and we'll talk about some of the different ways to think about the Reformation. Today, we think about Scripture alone being our final authority in faith and in life, and we do so by turning to this passage in 1 Peter. A 500th birthday, 500th anniversary, is a worthy cause for celebration. We often don't deal with numbers that high. Our own country still has a long way to go uh, to get to that number. But as Protestants, has all the fuss just that 500 years ago we decided to protest something and decided to carve out our own identity, our new place within the Christian world. Interesting to think about because if who we are really and truly is only 500 years old, then we have a little bit of a problem. The ministry of the apostles, the ministry of our own Lord, happened 2,000 years ago, much longer than 500. And if we are not founded upon the rock of the faith that was once and for all delivered when Christ established the church and when the apostles went forth and proclaimed the kingdom of God, we should look at the last 500 years, perhaps not with pride, but with great suspicion. Beyond this, many people question the Reformation's usefulness, and they point to something that probably is worthy of pointing out. In 2010, it was estimated that there are around 38,000 Protestant denominations, 38,000. It seems that something has gone wrong between now and when Jesus prayed that we would be one, even as he and the Father are one. And so scholars, historians have said the same thing in various ways. One put it like this, the result of sola scriptura, scripture alone, has been doctrinal chaos. Chaos is the word that he uses. As some see it, this Uh, Principle is perhaps fine in itself as you think about it. Scripture alone may be a good idea, but when eventually you have people disagreeing about what this scripture means, then what you have oftentimes is chaos and division all the way down. 
These are accusations or concerns perhaps that we should hear as Protestants as we set out uh, to celebrate the anniversary of the Reformation over the next month or so. We should admit probably that over the last 500 years we have become uh, much too quick to break away and to form new churches and to in some sense break up the unity of the church. Maybe you've heard of the story of the resourceful Dutch family that was stranded on a desert island. They figured out not only how to survive, but how to thrive. And many years later, when rescuers finally came to get them, it was a a father and a mother and a handful of children, they found a beautiful island home, and they found two beautiful church buildings. And they asked the father, uh, you know, why, why you have this home? Why are there two church buildings? He said, well, my family and I were going here for a couple of years, but then we really weren't happy there, so we had to start a new church on this desert island. It's uh, true, isn't it, that we struggle to find unity in what the Bible says. What does it say? What does it mean? It's a fact of the modern world. We find it too easy to disagree. This is part of the human condition. Uh, Modern literary theory is uh, wrapped up in this idea that uh, Simple books, children's books, for instance, can mean a whole host of things, and nobody can really agree on what anything means. I was humored by a subtitle on the Winnie the Pooh stories. This book was written as a bit of a satire, but listen to the subtitle of the book, in which it is discovered that the true meaning of the Winnie the Pooh stories is not as simple as is usually believed, but for proper elucidation requires the combined efforts of several academicians of varying critical persuasions. I think maybe you needed the back of the cover of the book to finish that one. But that sheds some humorous light, doesn't it, on the fact that we struggle over finding agreement on what things mean. And this goes right down to Scripture and deciding on what Scripture means. But today, what I'd like to do as we look at this passage from 1 Peter is show sola scriptura, Scripture alone, in action. Show it in action. What we see in 1 Peter is that Peter seamlessly weaves together a doctrinal truth that God's word really and truly is our final authority in faith and in life. But he weaves it together with an ethical and a practical call for Christians to love one another. Scripture alone is not something that we treasure, not something that we hold on to because it's a really nice battle cry to go against other Christian traditions. We hold on to it and we believe it because it is the word of God that is set apart from everything else in all of the world. There is God's word and that is different than everything else. The words of man, the ideas of man, and everything else. The word of God is many things. It contains all things necessary for salvation. It communicates salvation effectively. It compels the conscience. It determines doctrinal truth. It commands the church's allegiance above all other things, including councils and human leaders, whether that be a pastor or a bishop or a pope. As Martin Luther wrote so many years ago, that word above all earthly powers abideth. This is not to say that scripture is the only place where we find any authority. It is to say that scripture is the final and the absolute authority. And it's the final and the absolute authority because what we see again and again and again in God's word is that it is the Holy Spirit who speaks to us through 
the scriptures. Psalm 119, 130, it's back here on the, the stained glass window behind me, it says, the unfolding of God's word gives light. This is what God's word does. It gives light, it creates life. And it is only the Spirit giving that life that has any hope for the church and the world and the redemption of all things. This is why we cling to Scripture alone. And it's not something that remains in the abstract. It's not just an idea. But it comes right down to the ground level. It compels us to love one another from a heart that is purified by the gospel and shaped by faith and hope. So then let us turn to this passage. Peter begins by saying, Now that you have purified yourselves. Now that you have purified yourselves. The NIV translation is a, it's a very good translation. We use it here in our worship services. a great resource. It's great for Bible reading. But this is probably an example of a, a bit of over-translation. The translators brought a little bit too much meaning into the English and probably said some things that Peter didn't exactly mean. Peter does not say, now that you have purified yourselves, he has said, uh, since you have purified your souls, you say, that's kind of a little, that's a minute difference to point out, Pastor. Why are you saying the difference between yourselves and your souls? I think it's important to note that because sometimes it's these small details that really illumine what the, the biblical writer is getting at. Peter said, now that you have purified your souls for a reason. And the reason is that he wants us to be reminded that God changes us from the inside out. Changes us from the inside out. This is a key distinction in New Testament theology. And and it's different and distinct from the way that the Jewish mind works that only studies the Old Testament. Jewish theology usually has a conviction that God changes you from the outside in. But Peter and Paul... Uh, They harp on this again and again and again in the New Testament that God gives his people a new heart, regeneration through the sovereign work and the sovereign grace of God. And through God's sovereign grace, that regenerated heart flows forth into a transformed self. God changes you from the inside out. It is spiritual life. It is what God is doing in in the depths of ourselves, the depths of our souls, that gives life to the rest of who we are. God changes us from the inside out. These are the invisible aspects of God's work, and we see there the Holy Spirit's work in us. This was one of the key convictions of the Reformation, that God speaks through his word, and what he does in speaking through his word creates life, at the very center of a human being's existence, a regenerated heart, and then a transformed life flows forth from that. So Peter is speaking of purified souls. How is one's soul purified? That's probably another key thing to understand in this passage. We need to know how our souls are purified. Peter says, by obeying the truth, by obeying the truth. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth. What kind of obedience is Peter talking about? Is he, is he saying the kind of obedience that's law obedience? Obedience to God's law? Loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Loving your neighbor as yourself? Is that the kind of obedience that purifies our souls? And to that question, we must say no. For look at how the verse continues. 
Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers. So it would make no sense for Peter to say, uh, you have obeyed the truth, that is loving God and neighbor, and the result of that is love of neighbor. It would be circular, it would be nonsensical. So that's not what Peter means. He means that our souls are purified through obedience to the gospel. Obedience to the gospel. Yes, there's a sense in which we need to obey the gospel. How do we obey the gospel? The the good news is a call to stop looking in yourself to try to find the, the righteousness that would merit God's accepting you. The call of the gospel is to abandon what you find within yourself and to look outside of yourself to Christ. Stop looking inward and look outward to the Savior. We must obey this command to look to Christ and to trust in him. And it is in this way that our souls are purified. This is how we obtain a pure soul. There's a great example of this in Acts chapter 15 where uh, the church leaders, Jewish church leaders, are trying to figure out how exactly they're, they're going to think about these Gentile believers coming into the church. Peter gives witness and he says, yes, I have seen with my own eyes that, that God has given the blessing of salvation to these Gentiles who believe. Not only the blessings of salvation, but the blessings of the Holy Spirit. And Peter says this, God cleansed their hearts by faith. It begins with this inward cleansing, and that is what the gospel does. Cleanses your heart, purifies your soul. The gospel gives an inward cleansing to all who receive, all who obey its truth. Call of the gospel. Do not look within yourself. Look to Christ. It is this inward purification that leads Peter into his call of what he says next. This central challenge in our little passage this morning. He says, love one another deeply from the heart. It's important to notice that this is the first place that Peter goes after he talks about the purification that the gospel brings to our souls. There is a primary importance to Christian love. He's going to say later in 1 Peter chapter 4, above all, above all else, love one another deeply. Fight to love one another. There's a primary importance to love. He's talking about the love that we have within the covenant community of God. We find this elsewhere in the New Testament. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says the aim of our teaching, in other words, the reason why we're doing what we're doing, teaching the word of God and shepherding the flock of God, the aim of all that we're doing is that love issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That love issues forth from a pure heart. Exactly what we've been thinking about already. A heart that is purified by obeying the gospel. Look outside yourself to Christ. Love that issues forth from a good conscience. What does the Bible mean when it talks about a good or a clean conscience? It means a conscience that is cleansed from the conviction that sin can now, the condemnation of sin can be brought back upon you. In Christ, our consciences are cleansed to say that in Christ, all of our sins are dealt with from here to eternity. And that love issues forth from a sincere faith, not not a faith that would be, as James would say, dead, but a faith that would be accompanied by a zeal for God's glory. 
and a zeal for good works. Thus, Peter calls us to love one another. He emphasizes it by saying words like deeply and sincere and telling us to make sure that it comes forth from the heart. The word he uses for the kind of love, you probably have heard before, there are different words for love in Greek. The word he uses is a Greek word that we all know, Philadelphia. It's a word which means brotherly love. What's interesting about this word is that other than the New Testament, it's always used to describe the kind of love that happens within a distinct nuclear family. We see this all the time in the world around us. Maybe you've, uh, I've had a couple of, of experiences knowing families like this, families where all of the children are boys. You notice sometimes they can be a little bit mean and nasty towards one another, but if anyone from outside the family ever says anything or does anything mean to any of those one boys, they'll all, all of a sudden they all rally together and then speak out or do something to that one who tried to come in and do something mean to one of their brothers. Only I can be mean to my brother kind of thing. This is the kind of familial love that we naturally have and we naturally experience. Protect your tribe. Circle the wagons of your own. Fortify the walls of the fortress. But the New Testament uses this word, brotherly love, to describe the kind of love that we are to have for one another in Christ. This is a call for us to live out our united status as children of God, a supernatural family, a heavenly family. The ancient world criticized the church because they, they didn't understand this. Why do you call each other brother or sister? That doesn't make any sense. In our sort of semi-Christianized world, it, it, it seems a little bit more cliche, but back then, people could not understand it. And what Peter is calling us to is something that we know if you belong to a good family here on earth. To belong to a good family is to experience that you are loved not because of what you do, not because you are particularly lovable, but you are loved on the basis of who you are. That's what you experience when you belong to a good family. You are loved because of who you are, because you are a sister or a daughter or a son or a brother, or a spouse. This is what Peter calls us to as Christians. Selfless love. Not a love that would look at other people thinking about, what, can, what do I stand to gain through loving them? What will I get if this person is close to me? No, love one another as family, not because of what they can do for you, but because of who they are. Be consumed not with selfish expectation, what do I stand to gain, but with selfless charity, loving your brothers and sisters in Christ because of who they are. This is the call. This is the love that issues forth from a purified soul. And Peter then goes on to give the ground of this call. What he says the ground of this call is, is the new birth. The new birth of the Christian, which only happens through the living and enduring and and abiding word of God. We cannot love without hope, and we cannot have a living hope without God speaking through the scriptures. Hope is the ground of our love, and hope is born in us through the Holy Spirit speaking in the scriptures. Peter says, 
that we are to do this, for we have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. This isn't the first time that Peter talks about the new birth. He talks about it at the beginning of his letter in verses 3 and 4, same chapter, chapter 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish. There we see the imperishable again. Never perish or spoil or fade. Kept in heaven for you. In our passage today, Peter refers to a living word. There's a living word. At the beginning, there is a living hope. Both of these are founded upon the resurrection of the dead in Christ. It is living because it goes beyond the temporal. It's eternal. It will never fade away. This new birth that Peter speaks of is what it comes forth from what he calls imperishable seed. We all understand perishable seed. All of the seeds that you can place into the ground in the world. You give them the right environment, the light, the water, warmth, all of those things. And they grow up into the apex of their glory and splendor. But then they wither and they die. For some plants, life can be very short. For larger trees, it can last longer than a human lifetime. But all seeds have within them the information that once you reach the apex of your glory, you will wither, you will stop growing, and you will die. But it's not so with the new birth of the Christian, is it? It's not so. The new birth that comes forth from the gospel, from a regenerated heart, God speaking through the scriptures... And making a dead heart live, this is the life that will never stop growing, that will never end. And it is the Holy Spirit that makes this imperishable, living and active, enduring and abiding. And it is this point that we must understand if we want to understand the launching point of the Reformation. The Reformation was not just a readjustment. It was a deeper plunge into the meaning of the gospel and it was founded upon the conviction that if we want to experience the life-changing power of God, we need to experience it through the scriptures, through God speaking in and through the scriptures. In our passage today, this is exactly what we see. You love because your love is founded upon a living hope. And your living hope only comes forth as God speaks to you and creates life in and through his word. This is why scripture alone is something to fight for. This is why scripture alone is something that Protestants were willing to die for. God speaking is different than man speaking. We have seen that from the beginning of our world, haven't we? When God speaks, life goes forth. Life comes forth when he speaks. This is the conviction of the early reformers. This was the conviction of the apostle Peter and the early church. That not only was it present in Genesis 1, but that God continues to speak life. The apostle Paul talks about this. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts. Paul is connecting that to the proclamation of the gospel. The life of God comes forth when his word is proclaimed. It creates life in his people. 
It creates life from those outside of God's people who then come into the church and live for and glorify God. This is the launching point of the Reformation. This is why Peter quotes Isaiah 40. All the ideas, all the words of man, they're all like grass. They may be arrayed in great splendor for a time, but the grass withers, the flowers fall, but it is the word of God that endures forever. And it's not some merely intellectual doctrine, is it? It's the heartbeat of our hope. It's the source of our love. Love one another deeply. Peter refuses to allow doctrine and ethics to be divorced here. They go together. You need to know what God is saying, but as you learn what God is saying, as God speaks to you in and through his word by the power of the Spirit, he is shaping you. He is growing you to be one who loves your brothers and your, and your sisters in Christ. So scripture is our final authority. That does not mean, as I mentioned before, that it is the only place where we see any authority operating. The church does have authority. Elders and deacons have authority over the flock, the congregation entrusted to them. But it's not a final and an absolute authority, is it? It's a relative authority. It's dependent upon that which is given to them in the word of God. And so if church leaders stray from God's word, they forfeit that authority. And they will answer to God for straying from his word. Church councils have an authority. But again, it is not an absolute and a final authority. We are creedal Christians because we see in those early church councils that the doctrine of the Trinity was vindicated and brought forth. That it illuminated the teachings of scripture. That is why they have a relative authority. Because they bring forth the teaching of scripture. Thus we are creedal Christians. We are confessional Christians. Confessionally reformed Christians. But our reformed confessions don't have an absolute and a final authority. They have a relative authority because we see in them a faithful exposition of what is taught in God's word. All of these things, they have relative authority because of the final authority, God speaking in his word, because we have this conviction. To be Protestant is to strive to be biblical. May all of our traditions be founded upon the word of God. May everything we do be based upon the word of God, because it is there that we find the activity of God. You want to know how a Christian gets from their spiritual cradle to grave in Christ. It is through God speaking and God acting and God forming and shaping and molding them. In our passage, we even see a reminder of that, that it is the proclamation of the word. It's a reminder that if scripture was the only place where we had any authority, we would be just as fine staying away from all of, Christ, all, all of Christendom and all other Christians and just having our Bible and reading it. But the scriptures are given to the church so that we might come together and hear the word proclaimed and taught and that we might sing scripture with one voice and that scripture might be prayed in the midst of the saints. There is something about sitting and hearing the word proclaimed to us that shapes us and where we find more directly the activity of God. Outside of the church, outside of the proclaimed word, 
divorced from the fellowship of believers, uh, who receive the word together, outside of all of those things, we are on very dangerous ground. Through God's word, he does all of these things in the church through all of these relative authorities that are based on the final authority of God's word. His God-breathed, living and active word that transforms us to be able to love each other in the way that we must. The church can only endure by God's speaking and creating and making all things new. Another shortening of the, Refor- of the Reformation's ideas is not just the five solas. You could say uh, a summary of the Reformation is that God alone saves. And his saving work in us is what empowers us to love best. We are to be the people in the world to love best. Because God is building his church, shaping, forming, molding us, confronting us with his truth. And it is there as his word is proclaimed and read and taught that we find the activity of God. By scripture alone, God creates in us a living hope. And through our living hope, we love one another. Let's pray. Father, may you glorify yourself in this place. May you remind us of all that you have done in and through your word. Through your word and through your gospel, may you empower us to love one another deeply from the heart. For you have changed us through the gospel, through Christ. You bring about new birth as we hear the gospel again and again and again. As we look to our Savior again and again and again. Bring us back to Christ, to the foot of the cross, each and every day of our lives. We trust in him and we look to him. In his name we pray, amen.